Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is production manager for the Boston House of Blues and the Xfinity Center, Tim McKenna. First of all, there are some really big happenings in German copyright that may eventually influence the copyright laws in the United States. So to back up for a second, in 2019, the European Union passed a new copyright directive that would require platforms to make their best efforts to remove any kind of unlicensed content, and then they'd have to take concrete steps to ensure that it wasn't uploaded again, and then they'd have to reach a fair remuneration deal with the rights holders. On the surface, it sounds like a pretty good deal, especially for artists, musicians, creators, but the problem was that the directive went a little too far, and as a result, all sorts of content came down. So as a result, you had thousands of young people that actually marched in protest in Germany. Well, German lawmakers saw that, and of course, they never liked to see people in the streets. So they recently loosened the liability provisions, but they did it so much that it became hard to license sites like TikTok and Triller. And that's because they mostly rely on very short clips. Now, the new liability provisions say that clips under 15 seconds are going to be considered minor use. And as a result, they're going to be essentially exempt from any kind of liability provisions that were set forth in the original copyright directive. Of course, musicians hated this, and over 1,100 musicians and artists and creators sent a letter of protest. But what we're having here is the classic problem of creators want to get paid, but people don't want to pay for things that they feel should be free. So this will shake out eventually, but regardless of how it shakes out, the chances are it's going to have some influence on copyright laws back in the United States. The reason why is copyright laws will eventually be updated. Right now, we're operating under provisions that are fairly old and don't really apply to a lot that's happening in the digital age. So we're going to see some major steps eventually. One of the things that might happen is a look towards what's happening in the rest of the world in order to stay somewhat similar. And this is actually a really good thing, at least in theory, for most creators. The reason why is you'd like to have the same laws apply just about everywhere. So we'll see how this shakes out. It's still not over, but at least for those short clips, it's not really looking good for creators. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my music mixing primer and 101 mixing tricks programs that will help take your mixes to the next level. Go to bobbyosinskicourses.com to learn more. One of the things that I've been featuring here, especially recently more and more, is the fact that we're seeing companies that have been around for quite a while, especially audio companies, companies in music business, that are merging or being purchased. And one of the reasons why is, especially with an audio company, or a company that's making audio gear, is that the founders are getting older, they want to retire, or they want less hassle. But something just happened that really has a different reason behind it, 
And that's the fact that ProSound News and Mix Magazine have merged. Now, these were two giants in the business in terms of new music news that was coming out. Mix, of course, had more articles on how-to and more in-depth than ProSound News, which was mostly news. But nonetheless, they each had their own place, and they were both filled with advertising at one point, which isn't the case any longer. Magazines in general are not doing well because advertising rates are way, way off, and it's no exception here in the music business, which always kind of lag behind everybody else. This especially hits home for me because I wrote for both of those magazines. And as a matter of fact, my very first article that was published came in Mix Magazine in 1988. So this is close to home for me. Anyway, when it comes to ProSound News and Mix, they were both owned by a company called Future PLC. And This is a large company that deals in e-commerce and events and digital advertising. They also control TechRadar, PC Gamer, Tom's Guide, Android Central, GameRadar Plus, a photography show, Top 10 Reviews, Live Science, Guitar World, Music Radar, Space.com, and Tom's Hardware. So they have their fingers in a lot of different pies. That being said, ad revenue is shrinking. So it was probably best that both of these iconic publications should merge. It's a shame in a way because really we need them both. But what can you say when enough money isn't coming in to support them? The only thing to do is merge. That's not the only thing that just happened though. Muse Group acquired Audacity. And for many of you listening, Audacity was your first digital audio workstation. That's because it's been free, and since 1999, when it was first created, it's been downloaded over 100 million times. Now, Muse Group has Ultimate Guitar, Muse Class, Tone Bridge, and Music Score, and they claim that Audacity will still remain free. They're going to try to do some updates to it, which is a good thing. Nonetheless, we're starting to see a lot of this happening where suddenly there are companies that have been around for a long time and apps that have been around for a long time that now have new owners and new paths to the future. My guest this week is Tim McKenna, who started his career as a stagehand slash lighting tech at the legendary Paradise Rock Club in Boston in 1980. He now oversees production at the Boston House of Blues and the Xfinity Center. Tim has advanced well over 5,000 shows in his career in venues ranging from 60 to 60,000 in capacity, and that includes the Orpheum Theater, Avalon Ballroom, Foxborough Stadium, and Great Woods, as well as many other venues throughout New England. Tim has also produced special events for various radio stations, the Democratic National Convention, and ESPN. During the interview, we spoke about learning lighting without any direction, making the jump from lighting director to production manager, the current brain drain in the live music industry, predictions for the live music business after COVID, and much more. I spoke with Tim via Zoom from his home outside of Boston. Tell me how you got in the business. You know, I always say that I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I was... uh dating a woman who was uh, uh, doing uh, monitors at the Paradise Rock Club, or is, at that time it was called the Paradise Theater. And I was waiting for her to get off work, and the uh, production manager comes up and says, hey, while you're waiting, why don't you help us load out? And uh, the next thing I know, I'm out in the alley behind the Paradise 
uh, pushing Billy Joel's piano off a ramp and uh, into a semi truck. And uh, that that was in uh, June of 1980. And um, uh, then it all uh, happened from there. He called me up, uh, you know, a few weeks later and said, hey, can you help uh, run Spotlight and help with the equipment? I said, sure. I don't know how to run a Spotlight. And they said, we'll teach you. And I ended up uh, learning lighting. And then uh, the uh, the lighting director stopped coming to work and I became the lighting director of the, of, of the uh, Paradise. Um, in those days, you know, it was a lot more uh, wild, wild west, you know. Uh, uh, it was always a miracle with it when we got to show up every day. You know, nowadays we're a, a, what a twenty billion dollar industry, but in that you know it was started out. It was just going to be one of those jobs that I had until I got a real job. I had uh, gotten a uh, a master's degree and uh, bilingual education, and the uh, Reagan came in and defunded all those programs, and I didn't really like. Uh, you know, education anyway. So the music career, you know, it seemed like, you know, something that was interesting. And uh, so I stuck with that and uh, had a brief audio career. You know, most people in Boston uh, feel that it wasn't brief enough. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I would just, you know, turn the knobs until it sounded like music and then I would stop. So, you know, I, I've heard some bad sound guys who keep keep turning the knobs after that and make it sound worse and worse. So, you know, I, I, I did, you know, what I needed to do and um, and eventually uh, worked my way up to become the the uh, production manager. And um, that, uh, you know, and that would happen in 1985. And uh, I've been doing uh, production ever since. Started out at the Paradise Club, but I moved to uh, the Avalon, which was a, a big Boston club for a long time and the Orpheum Theater, and I did my first stadium show at the old Foxborough Stadium in 1990. And, you know, I think that Foxborough is a uh, Native American word for godforsaken because that was the worst uh, stadium in the NFL. And, uh, you know, it was built in a big hole, and every time we were down there, it rained. And we were always, you know, your feet were always wet. It was it was grim, but, I, you know, I, I, I learned an awful lot down there. And... Uh, I had a lot of great teachers and, you know, we all learned on the job in those days. Well, let's go back to paradise for a second, because that was such a uh, legendary club that, I mean, I can remember when I spent my time in Boston that, you know, that was the high end club. You wanted to go there. There was the best talent for the most part. It was cutting edge talent too. It was always really cool. It really was. Uh, Don, uh, you know, it was built by Don Law, who was one of the legacy promoters and, um, you know, I've had the, the, the great fortune to basically work for the same man for my whole 40-year career, and that's Don Lom. And uh, he built it as a kind of an answer to the bottom line in um, New York. And it was a sh it was built as a showcase club, and, and everybody played there. You know, ACDC, Van Halen, um, you know, I saw you too as an opening act. Uh, you know, it was a record company showcase. And uh, Columbia Records be really believed in this band called Baruga Bandit. And uh, they put U2 on the bill. And um, out of the 550 seats, it was sold out, 550 seats. 
And after uh, you two played, 450 out of those 550 left. Wow. And, you know, it was it was really grim for poor old Baruga Bandit. And, you know, as I said, the, the record company really believed in them. But and in those days, um, touring was um, a loss leader. People toured to support records. And, um, you know, so they would uh, lose money on on touring, you know, and to get that tour support that they would eventually have to pay back to the record companies. Nowadays, people tour to support their family, yeah. you know, so the whole paradigm has changed. Um, I saw the, you know, the move from uh, analog to digital. You know, I, I learned lighting on a, a two by 24 uh, console, you know, with not with with no, you know, push buttons or anything like that. It was just faders, a theater style. And, uh, you know, there were no moving lights. It was, you know, park hands and Brunels and Lico's. And, and I, you know, I, I, I learned an awful lot. You know, the I learned about the theater and uh, I learned how to, to light the money. How long did it take you to get to the point where you felt like you were a competent lighting director? Probably um, about a year after I got, I got the job, um, you know, there were, you know, like I, I've, I've figured out some some focusing and I figured out uh, what colors went together and uh, some different effects. And I started playing around. I remember there was a, um, a punk band called 999, you know, great, great British punk band. And I took the, the quartz work lights down off the the side of the stage and I put them up on front and I gelled them green and they had this song called homicide. And, um, you know, so, you know, when they hit the, the homicide chorus, I ran those, uh, that green quartz work light up. And I remember the singer looking up at me, like, kind of giving me like one of these and, uh, uh, you know, a thumbs up. And I said, okay, this is great. Uh, but I worked with a, uh, a great, uh, lighting director, you know, when I was apprenticing and, um, you know, when Psychedelic First came up, you know, we, we did a whole bunch of interesting things. And um, in those days, uh, a lot of bands didn't carry LDs. Uh, there was three guys in the crew and they drove a truck and the band traveled around in a van. This is pre-tour bus days. And uh, the, so the three guys, one of them wasn't the lighting director. So uh, we got to we got to do a lot of our own light shows. Yeah, and then it was kind of like seat of the pants then, right? It was whatever you felt like. Yeah, and uh, it really was. It was. It was. It was adventurous. It was the eighties. Uh, you know, there was sex and drugs and rock and roll. And uh, you know, I'm surprised we all lived through it. And um, as he said, I, I was waiting to get a real job, but it, it never happened. And uh, you know, I'm a few years away from retiring from from a forty. Uh, 40-year career in the music business. Not many people can say that. Well, I guess that there aren't. There's more and more people that can say that. But the fact of the matter is, there's a lot of people that want to say that and they can't. They went through their whole life just in you know in the music business. It, that's true. And as I said, uh, you know, when basically working for the same guy, although you know now we're part of a, a bigger company, you know. Uh, He's still the uh, the president of the uh, of the bigger company and the regional, so um, it's been a, a great relationship. Was there one show in particular that stands out from the paradise? There were a, a lot of shows. I remember, um, you know, when the uh, 
the Indigo Girls came out and um, everybody in Boston, it was the Closer to Fine Summer and everybody in Boston was down there. There was two shows and I was expecting them to bring a full band. It was just the uh, the, the two girls and um, uh, there was a crowded house when they came out. It was there were just so many like big songs that came out and, uh, and tours that followed it that um, it was in a really exciting time. The church uh, under the Milky Way. These, these are really big songs. And Boston was a very British friendly town. So a lot of the British bands, uh, you know, when the police came, you know, like they couldn't get arrested in the Midwest, but, you know, they were selling out in Boston and probably the West Coast. But the, the British bands really found a home in Boston. So there, there was a lot of them. I, I don't I, I couldn't say that there was one show that, that changed my life. There was a lot of shows that were changing my life. Uh, I had Miles Copeland on the podcast not that long ago, and, and we're talking about the police days in Boston, and he was telling me that the real key for them was they played in Cape Cod or something, and there was only five people in the club. But one of the people was Oedipus, and Oedipus then went on to, to play the record like crazy and, and to really you know push them hard. So then next thing you know, they had a built-in audience in Boston. Right. And uh, the same thing with you, too. Uh, when they played, uh, they didn't even have a U.S. record out. Uh, Boy was available as an import and all the cool Bostonians had gone down to Newberry Comics and bought Boy as an import record. And so uh, they had an audience already and they were being played on college radio where Oedipus you know, started out so that um, and I remember telling my girlfriend at the time, I, I said, Oh, I don't think they're all that, but uh, so is they, why they didn't put Music Critic in my job description. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Okay, so then you go to the Avalon, and that was another classic venue. It it was. I When they, they built the Avalon, and I was there on the first day, and I was there on the last day, and uh, I was the, basically the only production manager Avalon ever had. And the Avalon was a discotheque with a stage at one end. We didn't have a great infrastructure. We didn't have proper dressing rooms. We didn't have showers. We didn't have catering. But we had some amazing shows. And a lot of people loved to play there. And uh, just because we, we had a, a great crew and um, a great vibe. And uh, it, it was really a, a, an exciting time. And when we started out, they said, oh, Tim, you know, we're going to do 20 or 30 shows a year. You'll be the production manager there. You can work at the Paradise. It'd be, you know, just a little extra money for you. And so we it started out as a discotheque with an occasional rock show. And when we left, it was a rock club with an occasional dance night. Uh, because the music, uh, the uh, the dance club, the you know, they're cyclical and... Um, they had achieved a very high low, uh, you know, very high high during the first wave of uh, techno of the, um, you know, which was the first wave of EDM. And then, you know, with Oakenfold and all of those guys. And um, then they it kind of really fell off. And so they really relied on the live shows to keep them going. And um, in, then in 2007, we uh, we closed the uh, Avalon with uh Dropkick Murphys, and uh, but in 2000, you know, we started the the thanks uh, the uh, St. Patrick's Day run, 
with Saint with the Dropkick Murphys, and we're still doing that to this day. And uh, you know, twenty years later, how can you go wrong? Exactly. Uh, you know, the Booker opens up his uh, his calendar, and he's got four or five sold out Dropkick Murphys uh, dates, and three sold out Boston dates at Christmas. You know, and so he's already got it. You know, eight eight sold out shows before he even starts booking the, the 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 club for the year. Yeah, yeah, right. How does one make the jump from an LD to the production manager position? Well, for me, it was once again learning on the job. You know, uh, they said, "Okay, you're going to be the production manager." I said, "What do I do?" They said, "Advance the shows." And I had watched uh, production managers that I'd worked for, and. Um, I, once again, I wasn't very good at it at first, but I learned on the job and now I consider myself to be pretty good. And, you know, one of the things that I like to do is I still talk on the phone to people. I, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I like email and, and uh, but I, I don't solely do show uh, advances by email. Is that kind of standard now? It, it, a lot of people are very much on, on email before having a paper trail, but I want to, I want to talk to you. I want to know what you're about. I want to know what your show's about. I just want to get a vibe on, on what the thing is. Sometimes, you know, people will send me a writer and they think it's really tongue in cheek, but it's really just comes off as being, you know, boorish, you know, promoter must provide this and must provide that. I go, well, yeah, of course I'm going to provide that, but don't be a jerk, you know? Yeah. And uh, so I want to find out if if you're just if you think you're being funny or if you really are a, a jerk or all of that. You know, when we started, it was uh, uh, the days of sprint cards and, and pay phones and uh, there was no fax machines yet. I remember getting my first fax machine uh, and then my first plain paper fax machine. You know, and I kept my pager a lot longer than everybody else did. And um, now I get complaints, you know, when the the uh, Internet wireless isn't isn't fast enough for them. It's really, a, a, you know, a uh, quite a, um, a change. You know, the same thing happened with the uh, the technical equipment. You know, when we went from analog to digital, both in lighting and in sound. And then we added video on to on top of that. Tim, um, okay, so there's a lot that, that's changed technically, and, and we've seen that, and society as well. But is there something else that, that kind of changed in the business? I know everything has gotten a lot more professional since, you know, those early days, but is there there's something else that you see as a big change? Well, in, in, by getting more professional, uh, one of the ways that we've, we've really improved is we've gotten a lot safer. You know, it was skin of our teeth. We would do stuff that I would not allow today. I remember, you know, when I was a, a lighting tech, you know, climbing a, a, a ground supported lighting tower and then going and focusing a truss across two lighting towers and thinking that that was okay. And it's not, it is not okay to do that. Yeah. But we did that. And uh, because we needed to get the show going and uh, that was the only way to, to do it. And, um, you know, we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't do that today. So, yeah, we are a lot more professional. Do you know, there's bigger, bigger pockets. It's a uh, bigger business. Uh, yeah, it has it has changed a lot. But what hasn't changed is that the people who are doing it 
are still some of the most amazing people you will ever meet. The people in the live music industry, it's a very small community and we really look out for each other. And uh, I've felt that, I've felt that during pandemic. And, you know, it's just like, you, you see somebody's name on a sheet and you say, that's gonna be a good day. And you're looking forward to it. And you, and you spend some time. And sometimes, you know, we do the show every year. And so the advance is, okay, Tim, I sent you the one sheet. Um, here's what we're gonna do. There's how many trucks, this is what we're gonna need to park. You know, and then we talk about our families. And um, so we have these relationships that are ongoing with uh, these people for a very long time. And uh, so, you know, the the human element hasn't changed. So now we have the pandemic and the way I've been hearing, there's somewhat of a brain drain out of the industry because people got to work and they couldn't. Yeah, that's a, that's going to be interesting to see who comes back and who doesn't. Uh, because uh, a lot of people needed to to work because we need to take care of our families and especially the road guys who are mostly 1099 employees. You know, they, uh, they there was some government assistance, but not enough. And so they needed to to pivot. And uh, I kind of dislike that word, but they needed to change and get get jobs. And and some of them will not come back because they said, well, you know what? I kind of like being home for dinner. Yeah. I kind of like seeing my kids grow up. I was, um, you know, I worked an awful lot in those early years when my kids were little. And, uh, you know, my boss, you know, he would give me all these shows. I, I always said that my kids didn't go to Cub Scouts because his kids did. And I had to take every opportunity to advance my career. I never said no to to to, to work. And so... You know, I did miss some stuff and, um, you know, it, but, it, but I also, I learned how to, 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 to do this job and to do this job well. Yeah. Well, I think that's the same for everybody. You know, if you're in the business, there are things that you miss and there's no way around it. Right. But, uh, you know, now I, uh, I, I, I've, I've learned a little bit in my older age that, you know, now I can I can delegate a little bit more, I, a little bit better. I was I was sick a couple of years ago, so I said, you know what, I'm not going to work nights and weekends. But I went to work every day during you know radiation with my cancer treatment, and uh, everybody thought I was nuts. But I needed to do that. I needed to stay out of my head. But you know, I did. Uh, you know, say you know at six o'clock, you guys, you know, this is all set. You know, here's your night of show guy. And uh, I would uh, go home and, you know, not work nights and weekends. I, you know, I was going to try not to go back to that. When we start up again, you know, I might have to do that uh, just to get, get my systems back into place. So any idea of when things are going to start again? You know, I'm not a fortune teller, but I would think that probably <clears throat> in the uh, second half of the year, we're going to see outdoor shows. Uh, maybe in the fall or winter, we'll see indoor shows. In Texas, you're gonna um, you're already seeing uh, full scale shows, so um, it's it's coming and uh, and I think that 22 is gonna be a, a monster year for the live music business uh, because uh, as I mentioned before, previously bands would tour to sell records and that's how they made their money. The industry has changed so much that 
live music is the main revenue stream for a lot of bands. Uh, getting you know your music onto a TV show or a commercial or something like that is a secondary stream, and and of course access through meet and greets and whatever is another uh, revenue stream. But their primary mu- revenue stream is is playing shows, and these a, a lot of the second tier bands, you know, U two and uh, the Stones can afford to stay home forever. But a lot of uh, other bands can't afford that, uh, especially uh, like big club bands, small theater bands. They need to play shows and they are raring to go. And um, so I think that we're going to see uh, next year a, a a huge, you know, we're going to be working seven days a week is what I think. What's your take on live streaming? My take on live streaming is that it's it's a it's a placeholder. And that it's a way for bands to stay out in front of the public eye. But for me, um, the reason that I love being in the live music business is because it's like being uh, uh, in the magic show. It's like producing magic shows. There, um, there is something that you cannot duplicate with the live stream or strapping a phone to your face that happens at live shows. People are shoulder to shoulder, you know, looking at, you know, listening to a song that got them through that tough time in 10th grade. And that it will never be duplicated. That feeling because you're in a community of like minded people. And I can't you can't replace that with live streaming. So I think that people will always want to go to a live show. I was talking to a friend today and he said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm buying tickets for this. I need to go to a live show. I need to go to a live show. And, you know, even if it's to go see a cover band, you know, they, they needed to just to get out there and to be with people and to sing along with songs that you know and, you know, to take you back. You know, some, of the, some music, you know, takes me back to a time and place. I, I was at a concert. You know, I paid to go to a concert, you know, believe it or not, a few years ago. And I remember, you know, the artist is on stage singing. It was, uh, I'm thinking with Neil Young. And um, he was singing uh, Harvest Moon. And there's a full moon rising between two palm trees in the desert. And, you know, and I was crying. And, you know, because that took me back to a time you know, I, you know, listened to Neil Young. It was the first record I ever bought, you know, so that music just took me back to that time. And um, there's nothing that can replace that. There's, you know, no live stream will ever replace that, you know, to, in, in terms of the emotional connection that you have with that band and the band connecting with you as well. Yeah. Yeah. What's the most difficult thing that you do in your job? Or the thing that you like the least? I'm not sure. Uh, a lot of uh, my job, you know, is because I have some systems in place and because I have a great crew, you know, uh, there is a lot of times I don't really need to be there. But there are a few times, you know, when, when, the, when the stuff hits the fan, you know, where you want somebody who has a 40 year experience and, a, you know, a big Rolodex. There was um, a few years ago uh, at the uh, 
the place where I work. Um, all of a sudden, some of the power went out and uh, we went into the, the, um, the uh, electrics room and we realized that we had blown a 1600 amp fuse and that the show's all set up. We're, we're ready to go. Uh, the, the artist is actually in the dark getting a massage. So he doesn't know the power's gone out. So we blow the 600, uh, 1600 amp uh, fuse, 480 volts. It's the main service coming into the building. But luckily we had a spare and I changed that fuse and um, we had the show. We made curfew. And um, but I had like two senior vice presidents of the company, the one of the top tour managers in the world. And they were all there watching me and they said, hey, Tim, you got this right. And I said, I blank hope so. Yeah. And uh, and, you know, so, you know, it's once in a while you have a guy that, you know, can pull a rabbit out of his hat. That would be me. And uh, so uh, there's, a, a, you know, some drudgery and and uh, but as I said, the relationships are, are a huge part of it. I'm happier, you know, when I'm actually on stage doing, you know, helping somebody, you know, solve a problem. And, you know, but I joke that I spend more time on Excel than I do on stage. Mm, yeah. And, you know, and that's how, because I'm in the music business. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm creating budgets. I'm, I'm figuring out if I'm, you know, hitting my budget or, you know, what, you know, the staffing or whatever it might be. But, you know, and that part is good, too, when you succeed. Anytime you succeed at something, you feel good about yourself. But I do enjoy just getting to the nitty gritty, helping somebody hang some lights. You know, I, I'll, I'll once in a while, I'll jump in the truck. I'll, I'll throw some cases around, show, show the kids. I said, I'm 65 and I can live twice, year, twice what you are. Let's go. <laughs> That's always fun. Yeah, right. <laughs> Let's go. And uh, so I've never asked anybody to do something that I haven't done, won't do, and, you know, or, and, or continuing to do. Yeah. Is there one thing about what you do that people don't realize or know? People don't realize how long it takes. You know, they think they're coming to a show, a 730 show. They get there, at, you know, at seven, you know, they watch the opening act. They watch the headliner. And they go home, but they don't realize that I've been on site since seven in the morning and uh, that and I won't be leaving till one thirty or two. So they don't realize that their four hour window of, of enjoyment, you know, took me 18 hours to do. I, I people are always surprised that, the, you know, my night job takes all day to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I almost hate to ask you this because. There may not be an answer, because, or, or maybe so many, but is there one particular show that, that sticks out in your mind out of all this? I get asked that a lot, and I can never, I can never, uh, you know, pick out one. Do you know, there's, there's shows, you know, like uh, in, the, in the summer amphitheater season, there's bands that repeat. And so there's shows that I look forward to every year because I love working with those people. There are shows that... You know, I went to a lot of, I started out when, when I was in high school, I went to a, a ton of shows and we used to just, um, we'd buy cheap seats, we'd give the usher a buck, we'd get down on the floor and, and we'd, we'd see all these great shows. And I was, uh, you know, I've had the chance to work with 
most of those bands and, uh, you know, all those bands that were my heroes growing up. You know, I loved Clapton. I loved Winwood. I loved, you know, The Dead was my first show. I, you know, so those kind of bands. I saw Dark Side of the Moon when it, when it toured in 1973. Wow. And uh, that pretty much changed my life um, because that was the first production show. You know, before that, shows would show up in a bobtail and they had they were carrying four four semis around in 1973, which didn't happen for quite a few years after yeah, that. Yeah. You know, so, um, you know, so, you know, I look back at some of those shows and said, you know, those, and as you said, that um, Dark Side of the Moon changed my life. It was a. It was, you know, just because I saw the potential of, of what you could do with shows. I didn't think that I would eventually end up in, in the music business, but maybe it was meant to be. So when you started then, later doing what you're doing, did you think back to that, to that particular show and think, well, everything is going that way eventually? Well, it's it's funny because I uh, I guess I guess so. And um through Facebook, I reconnected with uh, many college friends from 40 years ago, and we reconnected about 10 years ago. And uh, they called me up and they said, you know, what are you doing now? And I said, well, I'm in the music business. And they said, we always knew you would get into the music business. Really? And, you know, and I was studying psychology in, in college, you know, so. Big difference there. But, yeah, you know, it's funny. I had somebody else on the show that told me that she got her PhD in psychology, and she she owned a recording studio, and was a, a manager and every talent manager. And she said, you know, more than anything, I needed that psychology in order to do what I do well now. Maybe so. I uh, I got a I got a, my undergraduate it was in psychology. I got a master's degree in education. You know, right before I started all of this, and it was it'd be years later, but I ended up teaching uh, music production. And you know, when I started. There was no courses in music production. It wasn't uh, something that you majored in, in in college. And now there's a lot of programs, um, you know, and especially here in the Northeast, you know, Berkeley has a great music production program, Northeastern. I was teaching at the Art Institute. We, uh, we had a great music production class. I taught that course for 12 years. And I still, you know, guest lecture at Berkeley. I still go to Northeastern. You know, it's great because... You know, what, what uh, I, I thought was going to be a job that I was going to do until I got a real job is now a real job. And that kids are learning how to do that in college. And, uh, you know, and I, I try to bring some real world um, knowledge to them. And uh, so, you know, I went full circle with that education degree. Sure. And, uh, you know, was, was teaching at the college level. Sure, sure. Last question, Tim. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way or somebody imparted to you? Uh, to be honest, um, I think that uh, trying to, you know, BS your way through a situation, you know, when I've made mistakes, I've owned them. And, you know, and, and people say, okay, so how are we going to fix it? But you, trying to pretend that you hadn't made the mistake is... Um, I think uh, um, very short-sighted. People will respect you for telling the truth, and um, and I think that gets you through everything in life. Is is if you tell the truth and be nice, then you're going to go far. You know, that's I I came up with that the other day. 
I was sitting in my uh, my room and I'm going, this is the secret to life. Tell the truth and be nice. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com where you can find an Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>